Welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick, and um, in this edition of the podcast, I'm talking to, I, th- I think I can say, um, the the voice of motorsport for North American viewers and many others uh, for many years, and uh, also Formula E announcer, uh, Bob Varsha. Thank you so much for coming on the Motion E podcast with me. Oh, my pleasure, Stuart. And um, yeah, you're you're in your home in Atlanta right now, I believe, in Georgia. That's correct. Right. And um, I I was listening to some other podcast interviews you've done previously in, in a vain attempt to not ask the same questions you've been asked before. But I can imagine that in your long storied career, you've probably been asked every question that a TV commentator can possibly <laughs> be asked, haven't you? Well, a whole bunch of them over and over again. But that's fine. You know, that's that's what we signed up for. And I don't mind a bit. Well, fantastic. And uh, what would you say is the question that people ask you the most? Is it something to do with how can I get into motorsport? There's a lot of that, I would say. Um, you know, how did you get into motorsports? And the irony there is I don't know what to tell them because my job found me way back in the dark ages of 1979, 1980. Um, I never trained, never took a university course, never did any kind of communications work. Um came to Atlanta after uh, after my college years and kept up my running career, um, had some success, uh, almost qualified for the 76 Olympics in the marathon. I finished sixth in the trials, which was head and shoulders above what I had ever done before. So that was a pretty cool thing. Uh, and I um, assumed the executive directorship of a monstrous uh, running club we have here in Atlanta, the Atlanta Track Club. And our big event every year is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, our newspaper, Peachtree 10K Road Race, which uh, gathers together about 65,000 people on the 4th of July, Independence Day in all its glory. uh, And they run a a very challenging course through the heart of Atlanta to our big central city park, Piedmont Park. Um, And amazingly, not too many of them drop dead en route, which is is pretty much good. Uh, so I organized it for a couple of years in its, uh, in its well, not its infancy, but its middle age. And, uh, and then I left that job because I was doing about three different things at the time, uh, including my nascent law career, which is why I came to Atlanta in the first place and got my law degree at Emory University. But um, out of nowhere, I got a phone call from the folks at Turner Broadcasting who said they wanted to televise the Peachtree one year and asked if I'd be interested in being a commentator. I'd never done any such thing, showed up over there in the park in my window pane three-piece suit with hair down past my shoulders and a big mustache, and I'd love to see the pictures of that again. But long story short, um, shortly after that, I was offered uh, an audition for a part-time job doing news and sports at Turner Broadcasting, which is very close to my home. I've always lived right in the central part of Atlanta. Went there, worked for TBS. Um, worked on CNN radio and then moved over to CNN for news and sports and just got my hand in the air for everything that came along. And while I was at at Turner, I was lucky to meet a group of uh, independent producers who were putting together the first ever um, motorsports weekly program here in the United States. It was called Motor Week Illustrated, working with some great people like Dave Despain, who's in the American Motorcyclist Association Hall of Fame, Chris Economecki, who is in every Hall of Fame, uh, Ken Squire, uh, just a terrific learning place for me as I tried to get up to speed on motorsports. 
Um, and they assigned me to go out and follow the glory days of the IMSA Camel GT series, the prototype Porsche 962s and the Nissan, um, you know, NTPI cars and the Jaguars and the Toyotas and what have you, glorious times. And while I was doing that, traipsing all over the country, uh, I met the folks from ESPN who asked me if I would work for them hosting their race coverage and being the, the commentator. So I started doing that. And then more jobs came my way at ESPN because I always got my hand in the air, as I said. And, um, you know, producers seemed to like me. They liked my approach. I love telling stories. And to those folks who think that my years of law school were wasted, including my late father, um, I think it really helped because I learned to research before the days of the internet when everything was paper and ink. Um, and, uh, and my vocabulary expanded, I'm sure. You know, the use of language is important. And this is true of both, um, both uh, uh, industries, both the law and uh, TV journalism. Um, so that's how I got started. And then uh, one day I was called by ESPN. They said that our host for Formula One, Sir Jackie Stewart, you may have heard of him, mm-hmm. um, decided he didn't like the cable lifestyle. I mean, it was it was pretty bare bones, um, but I was used to it because that's all I'd ever done. So uh, he declined to go to the Austrian Grand Prix at the old uh, at the old monstrous uh, Osterreich ring. Yeah. And uh, I was asked, can you go do the Formula One race? I thought, well, shoot, I've done 24 hours of Daytona with 60 cars and 300 drivers. And it goes on all day and all night. You know, what's a 90 minute Formula One race with 26 cars? So off I went to uh, to Austria and uh, I wound up presiding over the first ever double red flag uh, race in the history of Formula One. There at the Osterreich ring, all the cars went down. They went about a quarter to a half a mile, crashed together in a big steaming pile. Okay, This was red 1987, flag. wasn't it? Or 1986? 87, right. exactly. That was, the, that was the final one on the old circuit. 87? Yeah. Yeah. So they brought everybody back, pulled out spare cars if they had them and uh, lined them all up again. Great, we're now, you know, an hour and a half, two hours into our broadcast, we haven't seen a car turn green flag lap yet. Off they go, and they did the same damn thing again. Big red flag wreck. So after about four hours, we finally got a green flag lap, and Nigel Mansell went on to win the race. And if you can believe this, I walked out of the track with Nigel, Hmm. um, you know, kind of doing this, Does anybody see me? Take my picture with Nigel. Um, And he said, well, just glad I won the race. So, yeah, it was kind of a magical beginning in Formula One for me. Uh, The next year, uh, Chris Economaki began working with the new um, co-commentator, David Hobbs. And uh, they did that for a year. And it turns out, I think Chris just wanted to do one more grand tour of the the Grand Prix circuit. Mm. Uh, And he backed out for... 1989 and that's when i began my association with david that lasted oh gosh 30 plus years doing formula one doing uh, uh wec sports cars we even did some champ car races together i mean it was just we had so much fun and as david always says when we're talking with people 
I hung around with that guy in rental cars and hotel bars and what have you for 30 plus years, and we never had a crossword between us. So that was another magic time for us. It wasn't I, always I, easy. It was fun. I, I would I would love to stop you and uh, talk to you about those uh, those those early years with with the mm-hmm. Formula One circus because um, you mentioned you replaced uh, Sir Jackie Stewart and um, mm-hmm. of course at the time just playing JYS but um, he he was he was known for his biting interviews particularly that famous one that's been repeated years and years uh, for years and years on YouTube with, with Ayrton Senna uh, did did you feel any kind of pressure to get the same kind of juice out of drivers that he was able to. No, not really. I mean, I, I think I perhaps tacitly admitted to myself that, I mean, I can't hold myself out to be as significant a racing persona as Jackie Stewart. So, you know, let him do his thing. I can do my thing. If the drivers aren't used to me, I can I can play dumb. Would you please explain to me how this works? Uh, that kind of thing. So now it was it was pretty much a joy every minute. And, you know, the, the travel, while onerous at times, we went to so many wonderful places at ESPN. I think we were the only network for several years that went to every race on the schedule. Um, the British didn't go, the Japanese didn't go, um, and they are rabid fan bases. Hmm. But uh, once again, I was lucky to be there and have that much fun. And, and meanwhile, while all this was going on, I was being asked to do other things for ESPN, alpine ski racing, figure skating, motorcycles, swimming, track and field, you name it. Great times, and, and your partnership with David Hobbs, who I, I believe is uh, is is st- is still broadcasting now. Um, I, I I haven't watched US TV for some years, but uh, um, le- legendary legendary sports car driver in his own right, um, and um, obviously um, a a fine voice of expertise on on North American television over the years. But uh, um, the uh, the the lead commentator um, is kind of meant to bring a bit of journalistic heft to things. He's he's meant to he's meant to have endlessly prepped. Um, are you one of those commentators and have you been where you've got reams of notes and they're lining the commentary box like Murray Walker famously had? <laughs> or, or, do, or do you prefer to keep things nice and neat and clean? Do you prefer to revise them down to maybe a few sheets? I'd like to say I keep things nice and neat and clean, but that would be a bald-faced lie because stuff happens and paper flies everywhere. Yeah, I did a lot of, um, a lot of prep, carried a lot of notes with me, which came to mind in 1991 when um, the ABC network and a a sister company of ESPN decided they wanted the grandest Grand Prix of all on free over-the-air television in the United States. So they brought me in as the play-by-play guy and Jackie as the color commentator. And that's when I found out Sir Jackie is absolutely the unquestioned mayor of Monaco during Grand Prix week. And when he walked into the booth and I had taped my stuff up everywhere, (laughs) he comes in with an empty legal pad and a pencil, puts him down on the counter. And that's when he explained to me that he is severely dyslexic. So he he writes notes to himself in a very interesting and completely undecipherable shorthand that basically only he can read. Um, And, you know, I have even more respect for the job he could do back then. In- incredible and of course he grew up at, at a time when people got no assistance for this in school he he, he wrote yeah. about this of course and uh, 
I I I have total admiration for the for the way that he uh, rose up the ranks in motorsports, um, p- particularly at a time when you had to set up your own car and and when you know you you, you didn't have a team of engineers to do it for you. And um, I I mean I I I think he has analogs in motorsport these days. But I mean the, the sport mm-hmm. has changed dramatically, and uh, I I'd love to talk about how motorsport has changed for a broadcaster because obviously you're still broadcasting. I believe you've been doing work on Extreme E and um, on, on IMSA and various other forms of motorsport uh, more recently, but how has the job of a, of a commentator changed? Um, it, or is it still basically the same thing but with more technology available? There's certainly more tech available. Um, I think fundamentally the job doesn't change all that much. You just need to use that technology to bring more to the table. Um, one of the things that people have to understand when they say, I I love this commentator, I hate that guy or girl or whatever, uh, is that we have to serve the whole audience. The basic fan, somebody who just blundered into uh, the Grand Prix and thought, what's this? I'm going to check this out. I mean, God knows how many of those people are going to be at Miami in a short while. Um, But at the other end of the scale are the very, very sophisticated fans. And they want to know about caster and camber and tire pressures and track temps and all that kind of stuff and what all the latest updates are. So you have to kind of walk the middle line and make sure you you bring along the newbies and provide what the sophisticated fans are looking for. I used to get criticism all the time about why do you have to explain the qualifying procedure in every show? Because our rule is it's a new audience in every show. They may not know what they're looking at. So you know, you got to take the rough with the smooth. Yeah, and um, obviously you you've worked with, as you say, um, Jackie Stewart, with David Hobbs, mm-hmm. with uh, with 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 many many co-coms over the years. Um, th- this is usually a podcast about Formula E and electric vehicles. We're we're widening it out uh, this this in this season of the podcast because there mm-hmm. are just some people like yourself who I really want to talk to, regardless. But uh, you you have worked with Formula E, and um, your your co-coms there were Jack Nichols, who we'll talk about in a moment, and Dario Franchitti. Now, how um, how difficult or how easy is it to work with someone who you've commentated on? Because you must have had all kinds of things that you knew about him as a driver that either you you weren't able to bring into the broadcast or you, you had to think about which things would be relatable to the audience and relevant. D- does it add an extra thing to uh, string to your bow if you're able to work with someone who you have also commentated on? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And to his credit, Dario is fiercely proud of what he has achieved. I asked him once, you know, how would you like to be introduced? Four-time IndyCar champion, you know, whatever, winner of Long Beach Grand Prix. He said, nope, three-time Indy 500 champion. That's the only thing that matters to me. So, you know, you realize that that people who have achieved as much as he has, um, you know, are not sensitive, it's not the right word, but they are intensely proud of certain things they've accomplished. Now, having said that, Dario has a wonderful sense of humor. And I dredge up old stories from the Jeff Card days when he was driving for Carl Hogan and Chip Ganassi. And um, I often told the story about how his mechanics said he was the worst card player <laughs> on the face of the earth. And they referred to him by his nickname, the donator. Um, <laughs> But he handles all that beautifully well. And he knows, you know, when he needs to step back a little bit, it's, he's the total professional. Um, 
having worked with as many guys as I had, guys like Danny Sullivan, Eddie Cheever, Derek Bell, Eric Daly, John Watson, you know, and on and on and on. You know, these guys, these guys know where their uh, where their bread is buttered, and so they go out there, and the smart ones uh, are very, very gracious with the fans, and uh, that's something else I learned. Just be nice to everybody. It doesn't cost anything, and um, you'll benefit in the long run. Absolutely. And um, I, I guess Formula E, like Extreme E, it's, it's one of those forms of motorsport that has had to come into a very different um, kind of agenda on climate change. Um, but um, back back when I think, um, I, I mean, I, I started watching Formula One in 1989, so around the same time that you started commentating on it. But uh, back, back then, um, talk of the environment was relatively new and certainly motorsport fans didn't really feel touched by that kind of thing. Um, now I feel like manufacturers have to give that um, environmental reason for coming back into motorsport if they have previously left. And I feel like when a new form of motorsport is being developed or like with Formula One, when when motorsport uh, needs to change in some way, it's usually around environment and sustainability. I happen to think that's a good thing. But does that kind of... So does that in some ways spoil the unadulterated pleasure of just hearing a car go round and being loud or can you still get the same pleasure as a spectator and as a commentator from watching cars racing even if they're not as noisy and as brash maybe as they used to be oh yes i definitely can and i've taken part in that argument that it's all about the noise or all about the top speeds or all about this or that you know it's racing it's competition uh and i i tend to agree with those who say you know, 99% of the planet cannot tell the difference between 175 and 190 miles an hour. So, you know what, if you want great top speed, go to a drag race. Those guys go 330 miles an hour. But um, uh, yeah, motorsports has changed. And if you're a true fan, I think you have to change with it. You've got to take a close look at it and say, okay, what's intriguing about this? And if it's not, you know, go watch something else. But uh, I love watching the technology march forward. Uh, I wish it were a bit more economically feasible for a lot of lifers out there who have worked really hard to make a name and make a career in motorsports. I think we need to support them more up and down the pit lanes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I just don't get involved in the uh, arguments about what's better, this or that, or which driver was better, this guy or that girl or whatever it may happen to be. It's, uh, you know, it's all, it's all part of the whole, it's competition. It's, it's fun to watch. It's fun to explore. And um, although I, I must admit, I haven't been to too many races as a spectator over my 40 years of hmm. doing this, uh, but I have been to a few. I'll be going to Monaco in, uh, in a month um, for the fourth time leading a Mediterranean cruise, a themed cruise. We start from Barcelona, make some stops along the Med in some beautiful places, get to Monaco on Saturday, watch qualifying, Come in on Sunday, watch the race, go back and get on the boat and start drinking martinis. Um, so that, that's that's kind of fun because I'm I'm closely uh, you know joined by all these people with all their different levels of understanding of the sport. And you know if I can share some some truth or some wisdom or some opinions, um, 
that's kind of fun. That's something I really enjoy. That's got to be an incredible experience as well. I, I mean, I, I can imagine that some people get deeply irritated by being penned in on a boat. But like, um, I, I, I feel like a lot of people, if they enter into cruises in the in the right spirit, I mean, it's something my something my my mother has uh, been on a few times uh, with, with her partner. But I, I feel like it's mm-hmm. some it's something that people can really get into. And uh, certainly when you're going to those glamorous locations, but you've been to them already as um, as a paid broadcaster. Um, is it? Um, is it is it different? Is it difficult to sort of visit those places or almost as a tourist? I know you're being paid to do these cruises, but uh, it, it's it's a very different mindset, isn't it, to allow yourself to relax when you're going to those places where you've worked so many times? Actually, I am not paid to do this. They fly hmm. my wife and I over. They give us a very nice little stateroom, um, some onboard credits to use at the bar. We get laundry. We get Wi-Fi. You know, it's uh, they even pay our tips. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's just a wonderful thing. This will be the fourth year that uh, my wife Karen and I have done it. Um, I have to thank my old uh, pit reporter and buddy John Bisignano, who had done it for a number of years before. He either wasn't able to or didn't want to do it. He called me up and said, "Would you like to do this?" I said, "Let me think about it." Yes, and uh, he never got the job back. <laughs> It's I'm his Wally. Uh, he's my Wally Pitt. Wally Pitt was the first baseman for the New York Yankees baseball team. And then he took a day off and they replaced him with Lou Gehrig. And the Iron Horse went on to whatever it was, 1100 games. And oh, Wally Pitt faded into the distance. So anyway, I, I feel badly about that. But John and I have had some laughs. Uh, as far as going to all the, the races, I should point out that the evolution of television production now includes a very economical alternative, which is not going to the event, Hmm. sitting in a studio, uh, which we started doing at ESPN in about 1993. We were definitely in the basement in Bristol, Connecticut in 94, when Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna were killed. Um, And that has pluses and minuses. The old classic tracks, I know pretty darn well from having been there for years and years and years. Some of the the newer stuff, the the tilkadromes, as I like to call them, uh, places like Singapore, Shanghai, um, you know, Bahrain, all the Middle Eastern stuff. Um, I haven't been to a lot of. I haven't been to practically any of them. I mean, my Australian Grand Prix was in Adelaide, so um, you know that that kind of reduces the amount of intimate knowledge that you can add. But by the same token. Um, you know, you, you, you offer what you've got. I can't go see the drivers face to face. And I think they appreciate it when you're right there in front of them asking an honest question and they know you're, you're not there, you know, turning over rocks, looking for, for tabloid material. Uh, and you get some really great stuff from them. Um, I'd like to think I was you know, pretty close to Nigel Mansell in his heyday. Um, you know, of course, Michael Andretti, when he came over and had such a difficult season, um, it was uh, it was a very very cool time, and of course, you know, when you have colleagues like David Hobbs and Eddie Cheever and Derek Daly and so on, you meet just about everybody. Nigel Mansell was my first favourite driver. Um, l- later, um, I mean, he was never replaced in my mind, but obviously later, you know, other people come in, Jensen Button, for example, um, and uh, subsequently um, Edo Mortara. But uh, but but Nigel Mansell was the first, and. Um, re- reading some of the writing about him, particularly by Nigel Roebuck um, at, um, at the time and, and since, 
there's that kind of feeling among many journalists, particularly UK journalists, that um, that when, when they did try to get something out of him, he was very guarded, um, except when he wanted to open up for his own agenda. Do, 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 you, do you think that Roebuck was fair when he described Mansell's what he called sensitive qualities or do you think that maybe uh, I mean what was your sense of Nigel as a person did, did you find him overly sensitive or did you find him uh, just a guy trying to do his job basically well I like Nigel um, I admire what he did what he was capable of there's a reason he was so popular with the British fans you know the Lion of England he would give it everything he had to succeed and when he got out of the car, he'd tell you about all the challenges that he overcame trying to get that car. In the case of the Williams, what, FW13B, the, perhaps the greatest Formula One car of all time, but it was Nigel that got it there across the line. And that's, you know, that's fine. If that's what melts your butter, then that's okay. Um, I guess Nigel is sensitive. Yeah, he's, um, as I said, he's always been nice to me. And we encountered Nigel at an interesting time because, um, Nigel wanted to be liked in the United States, I think. He had planned for a long time to move his family to Florida, where he could play golf all day long, where his sons, Leo and Greg, could play golf, maybe earn a scholarship to a major college program, maybe go drive race cars, I don't know. But I really never had a problem taking Nigel for what he is. You know, if he's a little prickly sometimes, that's fine, we all are. Uh, I have a lot of time for these drivers who are so put upon, you know, couple of thousand accredited Formula One journalists. Everybody wants 20 um, exclusive minutes of your time. And it's just not there. So they have to learn to say no or put a wall of PR reps in front of them to uh, to help arrange when they can do these things. So it's, you know, I, I, uh, I have a lot of time for them. It's, you know, you're a rock star. You, you've you got to deal with it, but uh, do it as nicely as possible. And uh you know, we'll all be fine. And I, I think there are different kinds of racing driver, aren't there? I mean, there, there, there are there are the Mansells, the the people who just want to go in and do their job. And maybe maybe an, an analog might be Raikkonen, someone who just wants to go in, do their job, doesn't want to deal with the PR stuff. Jacques Villeneuve mm-hmm. would be another one. Um, you, you you could argue, although he's not achieved anything close yet, uh, maybe Dan Tictum is a similar one right now. But then you've got others who are good at playing the system and find a way to make the system work for them. And I'm not mm-hmm. being critical of Alain Prost for that. But uh, would, would you put Lucas Degrassi in that box? Because he's an incredibly intelligent operator, both in terms of he understands how to get the most out of a car, but also how to get the most out of a team and the media as well. He's he's He, he works on a different level to many of the drivers I see in Formula E, but what's your opinion on Degrassi? Um, I have a lot of respect for Degrassi. As you point out, he is very intelligent, member of Brazilian Mensa Society, um, says he wants to be president of the FIA someday. His, his heart is really in it. Um, yeah, he can be stern sometimes. It was it was quite a few races during my time in the booth with Formula E before I actually had a chance to walk down the street during a track walk with Lucas and you know introduce myself to him. I had to I had to work to get that done with all the drivers in the pit lane, and we walked along and I could tell as I said I'm Bob Varsha and and I work on the broadcast and uh, I'd like to ask you some questions. Do you know who I am? And he he thought about it for a second. He said. No, but I know your voice. So, 
<laughs> and that's, uh, you know, I'll take that. You know, I had a lot of stuff to do away from the racetrack, too, to get ready for the broadcast. So he's obviously very good. Uh, well, you know, just about all these guys are very good. But uh, yeah, Degrassi is a, an interesting character. A lot of imagination, a lot of engineering ideas. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, in fact, I'm a little surprised he's, maybe struggling is not the right word, but um, he's really having a go of it mm. at uh, Venturi against Eduardo Mortara, because uh, Ido has come yeah. alive, I think. Yeah, um, <clears throat> Mortara, I think, yeah, um, uh, well, simply because Mortara was Mr. Macau and I, I think I think one one races at that meeting 10 times in a row he was he 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 was, he was always uh, he, he he was always in people's minds as someone who might be a challenger but uh, I, I don't think anyone um, expected him to be the title leader um, at the beginning of uh, of the final season of Gen 2 so uh, no he, he's doing a great job but uh, I think the thing with Degrassi is uh, he he's like Jev. He plays the long game, and he he if if even if he's not in the title stakes right now, he will be by the final meeting. I'm almost sure. But um, who who else did you who else stood out as being you know pivotal figures for you in terms of drivers, in terms of team principles in those early years of Formula E? Who who stood out to, um, to you as being oh yeah, um, they remind me of someone great from the past, or they remind Remind me of someone who could go a long way. Um, I'm a big fan of Sam Bird. Uh, in fact, I was totally gobsmacked when I was diagnosed about two and a half years ago with prostate cancer, a fairly high risk prostate cancer. And I was lying in bed feeling sorry for myself one day and the phone rang and it was Sam calling from mm -hmm. England to say, hey, man, how you doing? And I thought, is this really you? And it was. He's a he's a lovely guy, great wow. racer. Only guy who's won a race in every season of Formula E to this point. Um, so yeah, I like him a lot. Um, Nick DeVries, I think, is terrific. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. I mean, there's so many fun guys. Mitch Evans. I mean, look at what Mitch did in Rome. Boy, they. I've yeah. had some some nice conversations with him. I mean, they're all pretty good guys. I mean, some speak English better than others. And, you know, I don't speak whatever they speak. Hmm. Um, but, you know, just that whole idea of the racing driver and the way he has to go about his business and deal with these cars. And these cars are much more difficult, I'm sure you know, to drive than I think a lot of people think. In fact, in the last six months to a year, I have heard three racing drivers poo-pooing electric racing in, in ridiculous terms. I mean, hmm. come on, guys, pay attention. Um, I won't say who they are. Very well-known names. Um, you know, they use phrases like electric uh, golf carts. I, th um, I, think, I think one of them is public. I think one of them was Max Verstappen. Well, there you go. Call it four. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and I hate when I hear somebody making an argument out of ignorance. I listened to a podcast with a couple of terrific drivers from here in the States. Well, one of them's from Canada, but, and they were talking about extreme eight and they were denigrating it. Oh, you know, sure. Yeah. They're real careful with the climate as they come flying in on their 747s. I've been watching them for a couple of seasons and I just don't get it. Well, first of all, they hadn't had a couple of seasons at that point. This was when season one was coming to a close. 
Uh, and they don't fly in 747s. They go on a low sulfur fueled ship, the St. Helena. So, you know, guys, if you don't want to like it, that's fine. But it's very rare in my experience for a driver who may not know where his next drive is coming from to uh, to poo-poo a series that uh, that could provide him with uh, something useful and lucrative to do. Because driver salaries in Formula E are, are uh, getting hefty. They they sure are, and uh, actually you've you've led me onto onto a line of questioning that I I want to put a pin in because I I'm so interested to find out about your view on it. But for, for, first of all, you, you you mentioned the call from Sam Bird when when you were diagnosed with prostate cancer, and um, um I, I I suspect you're the kind of guy who doesn't doesn't like to you know um um dwell on these things for too long. But I I I did. I did. I did ask you if I could bring it up, and you, you know the, the motorsport community was um, so great in the way that they uh, rallied around you during that, and it was so good to see. But also, congratulations, and it's fantastic to see you uh, back and fit and well. And uh, you know, it, it's 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 re- it's really a gift. So uh, thank you. Um, um, you know, th- um, thank thank you for fighting, and uh, it's great to have you back, Bob. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stuart. Uh, there were about a thousand people who contributed sums large and small to a GoFundMe account to uh, to help when I wasn't working for several years. Um, and I'm endlessly grateful to those people, whether they chipped in $5 or $5,000. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't mind talking about prostate cancer at all. Firstly, because it looks like I'm on the sunny side of the street right now, and I hope that's true. Um, I'm in remission, but it was a shock well, when I was diagnosed um, back in December of uh, 2019, um, what everybody out there needs to know, well, the men anyway, um, prostate cancer affects almost every male at some point in his life, usually well into his, his, uh, his elder years. But there's a very, very good chance there is prostate cancer in your gland. Um, usually, it's a very slow-moving cancer. Usually it's um, fairly benign. Um, There's a scale called the Gleason scale that goes from six to 10 uh, based on the intensity and the location of the tumor. So you get a biopsy and they stick it with needles, which is not a whole lot of fun. Um, And then they send off the tissue to get it analyzed. And uh, I, I really highly recommend to men everywhere out there. Once you reach age 45 to 50, get yourself, get, get checked. Just, just do it. It's easy. Uh, it's not elegant, but it's, it, it, it'll save your life. And if cancer is found, become your own best advocate. You know, don't necessarily take the advice of the first doctor down the road, because if you're reading information about treatments, that's more than two years old, they're obsolete. You need to look at the very latest because uh, the medical <clears throat> research profession is churning on cancer, particularly on prostate and breast cancer. And uh, I, I totally uh, urge um, everybody to go out there and be checked. I pegged the Gleason scale. The worst it can be is 10, five plus five. And that was what I was. Um, so I have no guarantees. The doctors are optimistic, so I am. But again, you know, do it for your loved ones. Do it for your, you know, efforts to have a long, happy life. 
right now, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. We'll see how the chips fall going forward. And um, your your longtime um, ESPN colleague, Marshall Pruitt, was uh, one of the people who reached out the first, I believe, and uh, he came up with the GoFundMe. And uh, I've, I've, I've got to say, you know, it, it, it marked him out as one of, one of the more thoughtful people in motorsport, really, when, yeah. when, he, when he sort of rallied around you like that. Marshall walks on water to me. I don't know how he does it. His wife is, um, is a cancer patient, hopefully a long-term survivor. Um, but they're in a very difficult spot right now. And yet Marshall keeps up his productivity. He'll talk racing endlessly. He publishes huge amounts of copy about what's going on in indie cars and sports cars and, and even Formula One. And when we get two and then three Grand Prix in the United States. Um, yeah, Marshall's one of my heroes. I, he, I tried to talk him out of doing the GoFundMe thing. I didn't think I needed it. Didn't think I deserved it. He said, and that's when he revealed to me that he was dealing with this with his wife. He said, trust me, you need it. You may not feel like it right now, but uh, as you're burning down your life savings um, because you're not working, you have no income stream, you're, uh, you're going to need help. And people feel like you've given them so much over the years that they want to give back. Of course, yeah. And, um, well, I've, I've been in admirer of his journalism for years as well and uh, um, I, I think that uh, that that particular moment uh, showed that you, you know that there, there was there was a good person behind the behind the great writing as well though oh absolutely yeah um so Bob may, maybe um, may, maybe you know um, so um, it's it's excellent to see to see you back and so on but I, I want to sort of um, segue from that very serious point that we made just then, and p- please, guys, do get yourselves checked out, to um, maybe something um, about the perspective of having a long-term view on motorsport, because um, y- you obviously have been broadcasting on motorsport for a long time. You've been a fan for longer. And I wonder how important it is, as someone who watches a particular strand of motorsport, to have that long-term perspective on how things tend to go. The reason I ask this is because um, I was maybe someone who panicked overly when Formula E's manufacturers dropped out um, en masse at the end of last season. And uh, I, I felt that maybe this was the beginning of a downfall arc. Um, what uh, people with far more years and knowledge in motorsport than I were quick to say was, you know, IMSA almost died. Um, in fact, I believe it did in the Andy Evans years almost. Um, you know, um, sports car racing has, um, sports car racing has, uh, um, um, you know, disappeared and come back. So, um <sighs> people shouldn't worry too much if you're down to like two or three or maybe even one manufacturer because these things go in cycles, don't they? They do. They absolutely do. Manufacturers are not crazy. They come into a sport because they want to win. And if they don't win for however finite a length of time, they're going to you know, pack their tent and go somewhere else. Uh, it happens over and over. I think sports cars are probably the best at leveraging the um, enthusiast drivers with resources to uh, you know, buy great cars, build a team, uh, bring in hot shoes from all over the world. Uh, and right now, sports car racing is in a very good place, I think, with the uh, Le Mans hybrid uh, uh, cars coming. 
Um, but you know, the, the rule remains, if, if they don't succeed, they'll either try, try or leave. Uh, and that's, you know, that's understood. And, uh, you know, that happened with Mercedes in Formula E. They had several years of it um, with HWA before they came in as uh, Mercedes EQ. Um, Audi was there for years, won championships, left. I felt particularly bad about that one because they were they were so cool. And Alan McNish, who ran the team, mm. was so much fun. Um, but, you know, other, other teams come in. Maserati is coming. Um, is it uh, who's coming to, uh, to, 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 to I think McLaren is rumored to be taking over the Mercedes EQ operation McLaren so, uh, M- M- McLaren will be uh, or at least that's what's being reported with with uh-huh. Nissan powertrains so it, it's 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 kind of not ideal, but um, as as far as Heath Robinson solutions go, having McLaren come in is the best one that anyone could hope for. I think. I think so. Yeah, it's such a recognizable name, and of course they're they're in uh, Extreme E with uh, one of my favorite drivers, Tanner Faust. Mm-hmm. Great guy, great driver. Um, yeah. So and that sport is just a newborn. You know, we'll see where that goes. It's very complicated, very tough logistically. Um, especially in the, you know, the world as it's been the last few years with the pandemic and what have you. It's, uh, I can't imagine how many late nights the folks from Extreme E spent trying to get a, a schedule worked out. And now Formula E has dropped um, Vancouver. Mm. Um, and from what I've read, it sounds like, you know, they kind of should have known that the promoter they were dealing with was a bit of a loose cannon. So I hope it can come back because I know some of the people involved in that race. Um, I tried to finagle my way into it when I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing this year. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful place to race. The Canadians are fabulous, but you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, and um, may- maybe you can evangelize Extreme a little bit to me because um, I-, I-, I was on board for the beginning. I thought it was a, an, a, an extraordinary story, the way that they repurposed the St. Helena and uh, uh, planned to make it as sustainable as possible. But it-, it feels like there's been a bit of mission creep in season two. Um, I I, I didn't instinctively like them uh, supposedly taking their sustainable motorsports to um, w- what will be a brand new cityscape in the desert. I, I felt I felt the whole Neom adventure was against the original founding principles of, of Extreme E. Um, and I'm I'm not someone to tell tell motorsport people how to run their own sports. You know, it, it's it it is entertainment at the end of the day. But mm. may, maybe you can help me to sort of explain in my mind some of the recent decisions they've taken. Well, you know, there has been a gradual change of management over the years, which is part of the reason that uh, that I was uh, um, cut away from the uh, announce booth um, for a year before rejoining it now to do a. American specific audience on the CBS networks, which I'm very proud to have. Um, it's, uh, you're starting from scratch. You have a vision, Alejandro Gag and his team. Uh, I think they've done wonderful things. They've, they've met so many of these difficult logistical cha- uh, challenges, um, but there's gonna be problems. Uh, you know, cars are gonna break. They have to find out what works and what doesn't. Beef up the cars has been the, the most recent problem, particularly at the back. 
where the rear suspensions don't have enough bump travel and they heave the back of the car in the air. And we've seen a bunch of tumbles. Uh, you know, this is a, it's a process. You have to go out there and, and find out what works. Test, 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 which is not the most popular thing in motorsports right now because it's expensive. But, um, you know, I think Extreme E is the right idea right now, not only because they're going racing, but the, the less understood part of Extreme E to me is the efforts they're making to demonstrate um, helping climate change. They're not going to, to, you know, places like Saudi Arabia and Chile and what have you to fix everything. No, but to call attention to it and to suggest possibilities uh, under the tutelage of some very fine scientists and, uh, and do things, plant mangrove trees, you know, whatever it might happen to be, collect you know, paper and plastic trash. You know, it's, a, it's a step, you know, it's something good. And you can kind of see the other established series kind of moving in that direction. Uh, Formula One, doesn't want to go all electric apparently. So they're going to go with synthetic uh, emission-free fuels, if that's possible. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, IndyCar is going to be hybrid. NASCAR will probably be hybrid, hybrid to, to some extent as they've worked to, uh, to introduce ethanol into their, into their fuel uh, regs. So, you know, progress is slow, but hopefully it's real, it's honest. Yeah, um, and as as you say, it's 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 part of a uh, it's it's possibly at the tip of a broader sweep of change across across motorsports. Um, mm -hmm. And um, something else that it's also brought is a change in the way that motorsport is presented in that uh, Fisher-Stevens uh, came in as the creative director at the start of that. And um, he, he, he was in charge of uh, how the TV coverage was presented to the world in terms of like generalities. But um, he, he, he also um, is better known as a film director. He directed uh, And We Go Green, the Formula E documentary, for example. And mm -hmm. um, so, something he brought in, which I, I, I haven't heard it described by this by anyone associated with Extreme E, but I, I described it as the drive to survivization of motorsport in that um, they, bit before it got to the viewer, <coughs> rather, than, rather than just giving you a warts and all coverage, they they packaged things up and they tried to develop rivalries which could be you know then sold on socials and uh, mm -hmm. uh, so ev ev everything everything was a potential um, a, well was a clip away from being on TikTok effectively and <laughs> you know very very good way to do it for for, for Gen Z motorsport fans but I I wanted to ask you because I I feel like F1 Drive to Survive was um, the first the first thing that really showed motorsport how this could be done. How, how useful do you think has Drive to Survive been in changing motorsports, in changing the way that motorsport directors think about presenting their sport to the viewers? Well, I'm no director, but I think they've had a huge impact. Um, their, their shots are carefully chosen. They, they gloss over or skip some stories that I, that I want to hear more about, but you've only got a certain amount of time and a certain amount of, of video, and you've got you to deal with it. Um, and we know that sometimes the drivers get their nose on a joint. Max Verstappen didn't want to talk to Netflix last year. And so you don't hear him, uh, except in, you know, otherwise available interviews. He's not sitting down and talking to Netflix. And, you know, in the first season, you know, Ferrari and 
Mercedes didn't want any part of it, but then they all saw what was happening and, and the, the boost that it's given Formula One, particularly here in the United States is, is just undeniable. Um, whether it's for the wrong reasons or not, I don't know, but it, it is definitely working. I mean, last year, Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas said they, uh, I think they said 70% of the ticket buyers were first timers. So that raises the question that, okay, they come, they see, they buy the t-shirt, eat the hot dog, take the picture. Will they come back again? Well, we're going to find out later this year if they're gonna pack another 425,000 people into uh, Circuit of the Americas. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they do. Um, and also Zach Brown has been quoted in the, uh, in the media recently as saying he's received calls from all of the major sports in America, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, whatever, saying, how can we get some of that? You know, what, what, what does it take to get a, uh, a clever production company to, uh, to make us all look sexy? And um, we'll see what happens. The, the severe irony of this being that for a whole generation, Formula One refused to do any of that. Uh, but Bernie Eccleston, I believe, um, um, le led with the line, um, kids don't buy Rolexes. So, uh, you know, it, it's only really since Liberty Media came in uh, four or five years ago that they've been doing this. Um, how how damaging was it to Formula One that in the years that you were a broadcaster um, for the sport, it wasn't doing any of this? Well, I don't know how much actual damage it did the um i think formula one kind of enjoyed its elite status you know if you know you know and it has this glittering history sometimes tragic history compelling personalities that journalists like nigel roebuck and alan henry and all these folks you know dug out and displayed to the world um so aside from the fact that it made finding sponsorship a little more difficult, um, I, I, I think they kind of enjoyed being the wine and cheese sport that, that uh, only Bernie's wealthy buddies would come to. But it, it certainly has changed. I have to say there's, there's a lot of support for Formula One out there and we'll just have to see where it takes us. And obviously, um, you would you would never speak badly of a broadcaster, and I'm not about to ask you to. But I, I want to ask, what makes a good broadcaster in terms of the support they give to? Um, it, it, what makes it what makes a good kind of channel in terms of the support they give to uh, commentators and to production companies and to to producers? Like, um, do, do you do you like a strong hand in terms of the uh, the the sort of production ethos that they bring in, or do you like to just be told? Um, we're going to let you do your job. I like being told we're going to let you do your job, but I also like having some agreement about what the critical stories of the day are. We need to all be on the same page. Um, so communication back and forth is necessary. Um, I always used to say, um, don't tell me what to say. Just tell me what you want me to talk about, you know, and let me go. Um, but yeah, but you're right. There are um, there are certain there's a certain etiquette that has um, changed over the years. I mean, when I started in the early '90s, let's say, producers and directors would often say, "Don't talk about anything the viewer cannot see." Well, come on, guys. I mean, they can see what's happening right here. 
something important might be happening somewhere else that will give context and, uh, and you know, uh, anticipation to what's going on out there. Watch the splits, watch who's, who's pulling away and who's drawing close. Um, you know, that is a, that's a puzzle that is full of energy and a lot of fun for me to do. Um, and I'm glad that that rule, if that's what it is, is changing. And now, you know, commentators are able to, you know, flex their muscles a little bit and, and say what they know. You know, here's, here's uh, you know, um, Max Verstappen going down the road and here's what happened to him last week. Um, so, um, yeah, it can be. And it, and it changes from crew to crew. You know, some producers and directors like to do it this way. Some like to do it that way. So you have to kind of walk that line again and, and try to give everybody what they're looking for. Of course. And um, one of the things that viewers do look for these days, I mean, it, it kind of... Um, I, th I think I think the the focus on who on who was the co-com in the booth um, probably wasn't an issue up until James Hunt came into Formula One. That that was when people really started to listen for the personality who was who was alongside the really knowledgeable lead commentator. But yeah. um, and you you had David Hobbs for years who did a did a did a great job with with you on uh, on on ESPN and on Fox Sports, um, but. What is it for you that makes a great co-commentator? Because um, they're they're not there to provide the the data and the the analytics. They're they're there to provide some kind of color, aren't they? So, what is it that makes, for example, Dario Fran Franchitti great or David Hobbs great in a different way um, for you? Well, um, first of all, you need expertise, extraordinary expertise, uh, and Dario certainly has that, and he is a very good teacher if you will here's what's happening here's what i see somebody's going to have a problem or somebody's going to have something good happen in the next short while and he's very good he is the star of the formula e broadcast as far as i'm concerned uh david of course was um vastly experienced having driven just about everything with wheels yeah it'd been a few years he's now in his uh mid 80s um but he had that folksy charm and he's very funny and I believe that people don't watch racing broadcasts, you know, to sort of grind the technology and, and all that kind of stuff into the ground. They want to, you know, feel like they're sitting on the couch with the commentators and, and, you know, we're just talking, we're having a beer saying, you know, you know what, what, what just happened there, or, you know, what that guy does for a living, you know, it's, I think it needs a, a certain relaxed charm. And then you need to be ready to, jack it up when something important happens, which is why when people say, why do certain commentators yell at us for the whole race? Well, I don't know, because that's not my style. I don't, if you're yelling when nothing's happening, what are you gonna do when something does happen? Um, so, you know, there's that, it, but it's all a matter of taste. I mean, there, there are people who like this commentator or that commentator, you know, some people like me, some don't like me at all, you know, it's just, it's what it is. I'll give you my best shot, and I hope you enjoy it, folks. And the, the, there are obviously personas that that um, that develop in the audience's mind when when they think about a commentator. Um, I I would say that um, your kind of um, intervention in Formula E in the early years was so important for the sport because it, it grounded it in the tradition of motorsport. By which I mean, um, it. Like, like you said about Degrassi, even if people didn't know you as a personality, they certainly knew your voice. And um, I, I, as an IndyCar viewer and uh, and and a viewer of other mo um, 
most sports on American networks had heard you many times as well. And mm-hmm. uh, so so it, it just grounded it and, and you kind of thought, oh, well, you know, th- this this is in a long line of other motorsports that um, so for, for people who are sceptical about the technology or sceptical about uh, about where the drivers have come from, perhaps, and, uh, you know, the quality of it in those early years, mm-hmm. having you on there, I think, gave it a grounding. But um you have a very different commentary persona to Jack Nichols, and I, I, I just want to dig into really um, when a commentator builds up a persona, it can be a blessing and a curse sometimes. Um, p- people talk about. I, I don't know if you're a fan of The Simpsons. Um, are you? First of all, before I go into this, how can you not be? Right. So the the term that people talk about is flanderization, which is the which is the idea of a commentator. Um, or you know any TV personality um, a- adopting the traits that the internet seem to think are important about them. Um, so, with Murray Walker, even though he wasn't trying to, uh, mm-hmm. for, for for some reason, um, as as people um, as people on the internet started to notice um, the the Walkerisms that, that that were in his broadcasting, mm-hmm. uh, I think they became more apparent. Um, and this this just happens for broadcasters whether they want it to or not. Um, and I wonder how 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 hard do you have to work as a commentator to make sure that you are you know, Bob Varsher commentating in the present day and you are not the Bob Varsher persona that people may wish to impose on you? Well, you know, I think all you can do is decide who you want to be and then try to be that. I mean, you're right. Um, With no offense to anyone, Murray Walker was the founding father, godfather, if you will, of a broadcast narrative style that I call the British school, which is a lot of words, a lot of talking. Um, you know, I think part of the fun of motorsports is listening to cars, um, you know, reflecting on the, the shots away from the racetrack. It's, but, but not talking constantly. And I think to a certain extent that was, um, you know, downfall is too harsh a word, but um, that was kind of the outlier in an otherwise all British crew. I honestly don't know how I got there in season three. But um, management changed. As I mentioned, uh, Alejandro Agag went elsewhere to start Extreme E, and new management came in and decided they were going to revamp the shows, and you know, they didn't need this odd American. Um, but you know, that, that happens. I've been fired before. I'll be fired again. Um, but it was great while I was there. I made a lot of friends in Formula E that hopefully will still be my friends for a very long time. Uh, and they're, you know, they're very good at what they do. As I mentioned earlier, Dario Franchitti to me is the star. Um, Jack is fantastic at picking up, uh, you know, which car is which, who's this, who's that here, where are we on the racetrack? He's, he's magic at that. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, what do you want in your racing? Do you want wall to wall words? Do you want a brief pause here and there, which, uh, led to a famous incident in which we all in the booth happened to pause for <laughs> five or six seconds. And uh, in the gallery, the producer said, why isn't anybody talking? Um, you know, because personally, I don't think it's necessary, but those guys were all still working and I'm not. Well, I can't say that because I am doing this, uh, this CBS American feed, if you will, with Ryan Marine, who's a very talented up and coming uh, announcer. 
And it's, uh, you know, it's a good time, even though I'm calling the race from my office, Brian's calling it from Indianapolis, where he lives. And in fact, for the Rome weekend, Ryan was doing his day job with the IndyCar series at Long Beach. So he and I both in our separate locations stayed up all night to, to get right into the, uh, the race on uh, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. Uh, and Ryan managed to do that by sneaking into the announce booth over Shoreline Drive in Long Beach before they locked it up. And he slept on the floor of the announce booth. You know, it's just what he had to do. And it's, uh, you know, make a great chapter in his memoir someday. <laughs> but uh, so I'm grateful to have this, uh, this CBS gig doing Formula E. And, you know, again, I just wish we could go to the races and, you know, see some of the drivers. We are we're very much the redheaded stepchild, I think it's fair to say. You were there for Gen 1, you were there for Gen 2, and now we're about to have Gen 3 and hopefully um, much faster and longer tracks. And um, it, it, it continues to get faster and more interesting and a better advert, really, for what electric cars can do. But um, how, how surprised are you in some ways and how proud are you of how far it's managed to get? I'm astonished, really. Uh, you know, I thought the Gen 2 cars... Uh, have been terrific for three years, and I can't wait to see the Gen 3 car, which, as you point out, is much more powerful and much faster. And um, uh, journalist Sam Smith has written that he's wondering if whether the, if these teams are getting enough testing for their drivers to be confident in what the car can do. So, um, you know, we shall see. But uh, I'm glad to see the Gen 3 car come along uh, I wonder where all those previous generation cars went. I mean, they'd make a, a great track car. Yeah. Anyway. I, I, I actually wrote an article years ago um, um, advocating for Gen 1 cars being used for a uh, for a feeder form of Formula E. Um, I don't I think that. it's got... I, I don't think it's going to happen because I, I, I just think the maintenance needed for those things and also the fact that, you know, that they, they're a different different battery supplier and car changes and so on. But it, it would have been fascinating, yeah. Well, keep in mind, too, uh, the teams are limited in the personnel. So it's, um, <clears throat> you know, there's only a certain number of hands to, to make things work. And after spending time flying to Rome and Saudi Arabia and you know wherever they go this year, these guys need time off, just like the Formula One teams. Um, so, you know, I hope the car, the Gen 3 car is exciting. I hope it breathes fire. I hope it's fabulous. But I also hope it's easy enough to maintain that, uh, you know, that, that the teams can give their guys some rest. It's a hard life. Of course, of course. And um, a, 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 word for, a word for Jack as well, because uh, uh, when, when they put a camera in your booth when you were working with those guys... Um, what what was what was so what was so fascinating to watch was um how he was like a Duracell bunny in that box he was he was stood up he was constantly moving he was checking his notes uh, he, and you you were like uh, you, you two were like yin and yang in many ways you you mm-hmm. you were the, you were the still force you were not panicking over not getting a word in you were just waiting for the right moment um and i th- i think that was the magic of those uh, first three seasons uh, when 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 you guys were together but um wh- what do, what do you think i mean what is the unique quality that he brings in terms of his commentary now uh, because 
um, he, he seems to try and bring an angle that maybe um, may, maybe um, commentators weren't bringing before. What, what do you think he brings that maybe other commentators haven't? Well, definitely energy, as you mentioned, uh, and a remarkable ability to pick out who's who. I, I was really in admiration of that. But of course, he'd been doing it for several seasons before I hove on the scene. Um, <clears throat> I mean, he's a brilliant guy with a heck of a career ahead of him. Jack could be my grandson. And he's already done, he does Formula One, he's doing Formula E, he's done Premier League uh, football, he's done the Olympics. I mean, Jack has a golden career going. And, um, you know, he deserves every bit of it. And he's one of those friends that I hope I keep for a long time. He and I share a birthday, which just happened last oh, wow. week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he is, you know, the thing that I would change, and this means nothing, um, would be to, to, to back out just that little bit, step off and, and let it breathe a little bit, um, let Dario uh, have his head in there. Um, and, you know, whether I'm or someone like me is there or not is probably not terribly uh, relevant. Because when I first went there, we did a lot of crosstalk. We stepped on each other a lot because Jack and I both do the same thing. Hmm. Dario is the, the expert driver. <clears throat> so we stepped on each other a few times and the powers that be didn't like that. So they basically told me, sit back. We'll tell you when you can jump in and talk. And what they told me I could talk about was the running order at a certain point in the race, which I thought was a little redundant because they're all right there on the graphic on the side of the screen. But, you know, I, I felt they were in good faith about it. Um, and then in season five, I guess, they asked me to basically do the first hour uh, for the international feed. You know, welcome, here's where we are, this is the point of the season, here's the track, here's this, that, and the other thing. And then when it got time to introduce the starting lineup, I'd throw it to Jack and Dario uh, and away we go. And then I'd jump back in at the end because Dario would leave the booth, go down and do a winter interview. And, and Jack and I would cut up and, you know, have some fun. Hmm. So it was it was great. And um, I, I imagine that social media has changed the way that you cover motorsport as well, because, I, I mean, uh, J Jack is constantly cutting over to tweets and, uh, you know, re reminding um, small um, small writers like myself that he does read what we're saying. So be careful. But um <laughs> I, I, I imagine that uh, just that, and obviously your Twitter has been covered in other podcasts much better than, than I could, but um, you, you're, you're very frank on Twitter. You're, you're, you're brief and you're to the point, and obviously that's to do with the character limit. But yeah. how, much ha how much has Twitter, which, you know, obviously we know it's been back in the news this week for uh, potentially unfortunate reasons, but how much has it changed motorsport in your opinion? Well, you know, it, it, you're right. Jack does make use of it. Uh, and he's very good at that. I am not, um, because Jack could be my grandson, I'm sure. Um, it, you know, Twitter is a very, very radioactive substance to me. Um, I don't mind criticism, for example, if it is informed criticism. If somebody is, is correcting me or raising a point based on facts, on history, on reality, then great. Um, you know, but if somebody's, you know, just spewing nonsense, you know, I'd just as soon not go there. And the other thing to remember is that the bosses are listening. 
and more than one commentator here in the States that I'm aware of has gotten himself in some pretty serious jeopardy for getting on Twitter and um, getting pretty spicy, whether it's politics or religion or, you know, the way racing series are, are organized and managed. Um, so you have to, uh, you have to be careful. You have to, uh, you know, it's supposed to be fun. Let's make it fun. Let's not start a fight because uh, I don't think that accomplishes much of anything. Of course, of course. And um, as, as you mentioned previously, I mean, you've, you've come into motorsport from, uh, from, from the legal field uh, and, and from, from running, from running uh, um, track, track and field events. But um, people do come in from, from different places. Um, you, you mentioned on, on the uh, Dinner with Racers podcast, for example, that Steve Matchett was hired for speed off the back of his The Mechanic book, um, 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 uh, um, which, which was about Benetton's 1994 season when, when he worked for the team. Um, do, do you think that there's maybe more scope now for people to come into motorsport broadcasting from different places just because of the democratization of the internet or uh, would, would you say that Steve Matchett is still an outlier in terms of the way he got into motorsport uh, broadcasting? Well, I like to think Steve was the first. Now he came in because we had a, we had a four man booth, no, three man booth, me, David Hobbs, uh, Sam Posey and Lamar came around and we had the 24 hours of Lamar on our network in addition to the Canadian Grand Prix of Montreal that same week then, of course, Bernie Ecclestone delighted in putting a Grand Prix across from any other big event so his drivers wouldn't go off and do that. But be that as it may, um, they decided David and Sam, who had both raced at Le Mans, and David won his class and in the index of performance and all that kind of stuff. To, so they were sent over to work on that and I needed somebody else in the booth with me and our senior producer, a guy named Frank Wilson, had read Steve Matchett's books and, uh, you know, rolled the dice, asked Steve, who had no TV experience any more than I did, um, to come on in and, and sit in on the broadcast. And he did. And I gave Steve full credit. He basically invented and shaped the role of an experienced, intelligent mechanic in the booth. And, uh, and we saw it subsequently. We saw other racing series on other networks would have, you know, a Steve Letard, uh, you know, somebody like that up in the booth because they were, you know, the, the mechanical gurus. So, um, yeah, I think Steve deserves a lot of credit for that. Absolutely, and uh, th- th- there is there is someone who's tried to do a similar thing in ter- in terms of uh, a-, a YouTube presence from being a mechanic, and that that's Mark Priestley. I don't know if you yeah. if you're aware of him at all, but yeah. I-, I think he's I think he's done a fantastic job um, on online of creating a cre- creating an engaging persona through his deep F one knowledge from a mechanic point of view, rather than being a driver or an ex team principal or something. Um, yeah. d- Obviously, that's going to bring a different perspective on things than than having been an ex driver. Um, but you, you mentioned Alan McNish was a ton of fun in terms of the uh, the the presence he brought to Formula E and to sports car racing. And I, I wonder how helpful it actually is to be an ex driver and then to cross the cross the fence and and be a team manager because. 
you're probably, I would imagine, making decisions based on what you would do as a driver. Um, how, how true do you think that is based on your viewpoint as a journalist and broadcaster yourself? Well, I could be wrong, but I think if someone like Alan had an idea, had a notion, he would go first to the engineers and the strategists and said, here's what I think. What do you think? He's not going to get on the uh, on the headset and say, "Okay, go do this, driver." Um, no, he's going to uh, he's going to respect the uh, the talent and the experience that the uh, that the crew brings. They got 20, 20 guys on on uh, computers back there in the garage, so you know, let them have their way. Um, and I think, as I said before, it it just adds to the to the whole of the broadcast narrative. You got me who's getting in and out of commercials and selling dishwashers and whatever it is, uh, a driver like David Hobbs, who's talking about whether what just happened was his fault or his fault or how difficult or easy that was to do. And then you've got a guy like Steve who, who steps up and says uh, um, what it takes to make that change in the car, because he was always burrowing around in the pit lane uh, with his old buddies, learning what they were doing, you know, who was in good shape, who needed some help. Um, so, you know, it just it just worked as long as everybody in the booth acknowledged their roles. I'm not going to tell David how to drive. I'm not going to tell Steve how to how to turn a spanner. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, it, it worked. And I'm great, very grateful to have had that uh, that opportunity. And then you have the pit guys. You know, we had Peter Windsor for a while. We had Will Buxton. Yeah, it was um, it was a merry old time. What what do you make of I I mean P- Peter Peter Windsor is someone who again has been in um ha- have been in motorsport really um in every role he he was Williams team manager when Mansell was there for example but mm-hmm. what, what do you what do you make of Will Buxton's career because obviously he is still um he he, he is still respected he's he's still he's still taking a journalistic role but mm-hmm. he, he's also kind of become part of the entertainment in terms of drive to survive in terms of be, being that sort of knitting together presence uh, what, what do you make of the uh, turn his career has taken recently well you know i have to congratulate him on it uh, whatever i might think of what he is saying i'm always curious when i watch an episode because the the will buxton's and jenny gals and whoever's being interviewed against a black screen uh is talking about this race coming up, what this means, what has to happen. And then other times the, the, the substance of the comment is about something that happened previously. I'm just not sure when they ask those questions because you know their answers always lead directly to the particular dramatic arc that we're gonna see in this race. You know, This track is treacherous, boom, there goes Mm-hmm. Grosjean, uh, you know, that kind of thing, which, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world, but um, yeah, Will's done quite well, recently married. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Peter's done quite well. You know, he took a shellacking from the FIA after his um, USF one proposed mm-hmm. team in 2010, never materialized. And he was, uh, you know, he was persona non grata for quite a long time, but uh, I, I think we see him around the racetracks now, and he's a he's an entrepreneur. He comes up with new ideas, things to talk about, as you know, is uh, Mark Priestley, F1 Elvis. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of wearing my, my Mark Priestley today. 
Ah, yes. Yeah, I can see. Um, he, he, is, he is the king of the designer stubble, though, Mark Priestley. Um, <laughs> and in, in, in some ways, he, he brings a new kind of voice to motorsport in terms of, uh, you know, he, he's, he's not trying to be, a, I guess the word is gatekeeper-y, um, or he's, he, he's not trying to use his knowledge to put off fans. Indeed, he's, he seems to have right. found a way to relate what he knows about the inner workings of the 2006 mclaren to um uh, and, and actually he he bring he brings people in i think using you know using things like gaming and uh u- using things like um uh, he, he does kind of a um okay have you ever seen professor brian cox the british science presenter no. So, so, so what what he will do is he will show the movements of the planets using rocks, for example, and Priestley seems to do a very similar thing in terms of using relatable objects to show how forces work and how uh, and how cars can change their setup and so on. Um, mm-hmm. That that's why I'm I'm a huge fan of him. But why are you why are you a huge fan of Priestley? Well, I just think he speaks very intelligently, but without speaking down to people. I talked earlier about how you you have to walk that fine line between people who know very little about Formula One to people who know an awful lot about Formula One. So I think he does a pretty good job of walking people through it, taking their hand and walking them through this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and I know he's, uh, he's got a, a fairly good business, I guess, lecturing corporate groups about what he's learned from Formula One team management that can be applied to any business, any job, any project. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a great admirer of his as well, um, and um, I, I think, I think he shows how, um, like you said about the difference between yourself and Murray, you know that there, there are different ways of uh, presenting motorsport to people and presenting your your experiences in motorsport, and one is nec- one is not necessarily um, um, better or um, or worse than the other. I, th- I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Um, fr- from that point of view. Um, a question about the future. None of us can predict what's going to happen. Um, obviously, you know, we, we have outside influences in terms of where motorsport is going to go, including, you know, the the Russian uh, war in Ukraine and recession and so on. Um, c- can motorsport be viable, though, as climate change makes the world worse? Do you think motorsport still has a place going forward? I think it does. I think motorsport, generally speaking, is probably the best test bench in the world if the people who organize it and run it uh, and the people who support it and pay for it um, and the people who compete in it and prepare the cars uh, will accept the challenge to take technology and do whatever needs to be done with it so that we do make progress in uh, in dealing with climate change you know it's inevitable it has to happen um, so hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see that sort of progress uh, and we've come a long way. I mean, gosh, I was thinking just the other day about Mercedes had gotten their efficiency of combustion up over 50%, actually several years ago. And, you know, no other vehicle on the planet had gotten over 30%. So all of that uh, energy uh, in the form of smoke or fuel or fire or whatever it was was wasted. But Formula One, with uh, you know all of the uh, engineering achievements that I can't even begin to describe, 
um, got it to the point where it's it's well over 50% right now. And that's, you know, something that even a couple of decades ago would have been thought pretty impossible. And they're going, you know, they're going farther, faster, and using a third less fuel than they used to. And I call that progress. Um, and j- just circling back finally to uh, something you mentioned earlier, um, y- y- um, we were talking about Formula One not going electric. I th- the reason for that at the moment is because until 2030, Formula E has the sole license for being all electric single seaters. But do you think after that license expires, Formula One might be interested in going that angle and possibly IndyCar as well? Um, yeah, I don't see why not. I don't know of any plans. I did interview... Um, an executive from Ferrari at Pebble Beach two years ago. And I talked to his PR people and I said, okay, what can you tell me about where Ferrari is going on electric? And they all turned and looked at me and said, no electric questions, <laughs> but you know, they're going to go there, you know, Enzo didn't want anything less than a 12 cylinder in the race car, but then they, you know, they had fours and sixes and tens and what have you. Uh, and, you know, electricity is where it's at. It's where the manufacturers want it to go. Um, so, you know, let's, uh, let's put resources into battery technology. Let's make them live longer, go farther, produce more power, um, you know, and get on with the program. That's always what racing has always been about. It's the best test bench in the world for this kind of technology. You, you said Ferrari got protective when when and said no electric questions. Is this just the famous, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, is this just the famous uh, metal walled Ferrari press room again, or or do do you think they have something seriously up their sleeve? <laughs> oh, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do, um, and I'm sure it'll be spectacular. Um, I mean, let's face it. You know, they have to. They can k- still keep making fabulous. Uh, ICE cars, but you know, electricity is, is where it's at. So yeah, I'm sure they're going to come up with something hybrid at first, uh, maybe all electric down the road. It's hard to say. I know nothing. So um, the the next the next thing on the agenda for you, uh, commentary work aside, will will be the will be the cruise from Barcelona to Monaco, I imagine. Um, um, and um, it's it's something you something you say you've done for years. But what what else what else is on the agenda this summer? Do do you get time to take a break? Well, we'll. Um, <laughs> I have too much time on my hands, to be honest. Um, you know, I'll do all of the remaining Formula E races. Uh, We've got four more um, extreme E races, including two on Sardinia. Um, And uh, really down the road, other than my my cruise with the Windstar line, um, not a whole lot more. I'm talking with some people about a a lecture series, uh, which I'd really like to do. Uh, But, you know, F1 Elvis has kind of nailed that one, I think. But uh, that's okay. There's there's room for everybody. and then we'll see what happens. Uh, I would like to work more, um, but you know I can't hire myself. Sure, and um, so something something which has been reproduced on your Wikipedia profile, which I think is su- such a wonderful quote. Um, uh, when when Formula when Formula One was no longer available on American TV um, um, for for the whole season, um, you described it as yet another apex in a whole series of, a, of APCs that life throws up. I think was the quote. Um, do, as as a 
as a journalist, commentator, broadcaster, do, do you feel that the stoicism comes from maturity or have you always had that level of stoicism towards your career? I think I've always been there or thereabouts. Um, you know, it, it, a large part of my answer deals with the fact that it is what it is. Um, I am disappointed that I'm not working more, but people have, you know, their, their preferred voices in motorsport. I get a lot of very kind comments on social media from people who would like to see me back in the saddle with Formula One or IMSA or whatever it might happen to be. But, you know, that just hasn't happened. Um, I don't have a lot of time left in this business. I'm 71 now, um, but I feel great and I would like to work more. I really haven't had an agent in decades. And that's probably my fault. I should have had somebody who was ringing the phone and banging on the table and, and trying to get me in the door. Um, but that didn't happen. So, you know, um, hopefully do good work. Someone recognizes it. And, you know, before long, you've got a career. Well, to, to, to me, when I when I grew up watching um, American motorsport being piped over to Eurosport on, on, on um, satellite TV in Europe, um, to, to, to me, to me, because of the, the years of watching that, your, your voice is, you know, um, it, when I hear your voice, it's similar to hearing like Harrison Ford's voice or Morgan Freeman's voice. It, it's an anchoring thing that reminds me of great times, uh, in, in the past and great, great times currently as well. And I, I, I very much hope that, uh, you, you do get the work that you're looking for. And because, um, you know, I, I, I think you do have one of the great motorsport voices and I'm not just trying to blow smoke up you by saying that. I think it's true. Thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, the Formula One contract is up at the end of the year. Maybe somebody wants to grab it and do something with it. And I'm waiting by the phone. Well, fantastic. And yeah. uh, thank you so much for the time as well, talking to me on this podcast, uh, Bob Varsha. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to, uh, um, to to really shoot the breeze on all forms of motorsport. And uh, yeah, um, th- thank you so much. Um, so um, uh, ne- next up, we can hear you, uh, I guess, on the Formula E race from Monaco this weekend. Um, what what do, what do you imagine will um, be, because Monaco threw up a fantastic race um, last season, um, especially compared to previous Monaco races. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel it makes a big difference racing on almost the full Formula One circuit now? Yeah, I think it does. I think race fans are smart enough to know that this is not Formula One. But it's a familiar circuit. You know, the, the real fans know the names of all the corners. Uh, so much history there. I just wince when I hear people talking about how Monaco may not be a part of the calendar going forward. Uh, that can't be a lot to happen. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be dealing with a place like Monaco. And, um, and you know, and after that, we'll finish out the season. Got a long way to go. A lot of Berlin and Jakarta and New York, London, you name it. And um, which, which driver have you been most surprised by this season? You you, you mentioned Mortara, which um, again um, it, he's 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 very much built on built on things and emerged recently yeah. uh, as a as a main contender. But uh, do you think it'll be one of the old contenders like uh, Sam Bird or Mitch or Jev who comes through, or will it be one of the people we've uh, not uh, not thought of as a potential champion before? I think it, Mitch Evans is the one who has impressed me. Um, you know, they were. They were nowhere until they got to Rome, and suddenly Mitch could not be beaten. I don't know what what happened to the car. I don't know. 
what the solution was, but you know, it was great to see that. Um, you know, it's kind of like what Porsche did uh, with the one-two in uh, Mexico. Uh, it's it's great. It's um, you know, it's it's competitive. Uh, there's room for improvement. The technology develops. The software, the batteries. It's it's just great fun. And I think people, if they tend to poo-poo it without seeing it, well, shame on them. Because I think you need to take a close look at this, and uh, I think you'll like what you see. Yeah, uh, Bob Varsha, thank you so much for joining the Motion E podcast, and um, all, all the best to you. Thank you.